Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by Mr. Ben Sixsmith for our Postmodern Conservative series or wide-ranging conversation on Twitter culture or mankind facing the internet, what it's like to live in a situation of the institutional collapse of the distinction between writers and audiences. Ben and I are both writers or aspiring writers and this is an entirely new world you have to navigate. I asked Ben before we started how I might introduce him and really I don't have a better idea than to tell you his bylines. He writes widely and you can find him everywhere from new things like Art Digital and say American Affairs to somewhat older things like The Spectator, the US edition or American Conservative and when I say somewhat older these are also creations of the new millennium. And of course he writes for Quillette as well. There's another brand new outlet. And it seems that somehow we are tied to these new things, these new outlets, as attempts to reorganize what it means to give out opinions. And if not exactly expertise, then certainly we're trying for insight as writers to offer something to clarify experience for our audiences. So first of all, this will be the subject of our conversation, what the audience is like and what might happen for the better and what's happening for the worse with audiences on Twitter and elsewhere online. And secondly, thanks a lot for joining me. I follow you on Twitter and it's a pleasure to finally talk to you. It's a pleasure to talk to you as well. Tell me, first of all, how you got into writing and how you navigate the problem of finding an audience and figuring out how to make a living as a writer. So I was writing little red blogs for many years, just as a hobby and as a way of channeling both thought and the desire for attention, but getting very little of the latter and not doing much with the former. And I was also posting on Twitter, which in a sense replaced blogs because people realized it was much less time consuming to express a thought in uh, 140 and then 280 characters than in 400 words. And you could quite possibly reach a larger audience. So Twitter kind of subsumed blogging. But then also people realized that there was still a place for longer form writing. And so a kind of new media of web magazines began to flourish. And one of them was Quillette, which I began writing for when it was relatively young. And as its popularity grew, that helped me to get a bigger audience. I found it much more easy to have my submissions accepted and then I began to get commissions and have reached, while not a level of professional success, at least a higher level of professional success than I ever thought was achievable through writing. I certainly hope that this will grow, that there is something to these magazines that will allow them to develop into something of a digital community where there's a bit of a following and somehow a code of conduct or an etiquette of reading and writing and even commenting can develop so that people can get to what it is that they're actually trying to say, as it were, to find a new way to go from the verbal issues to the non-verbal issues that are actually our interest. It's partly the problem of self-promotion, which is Twitter all day, every day, and partly the problem of even persuading people that you're trying to say something, not about yourself, but about the thing in the world. Mm. It somehow has to be solved so that we can get to an organization of insights, which is really what the press does. It doesn't have that much expertise to offer, and it's foolhardy to try to get in the news business, as it were. If, on the other hand, people can be persuaded that you're talking about a real thing and you have noticed something worth noticing, then we would have something like what I think we grew up with since when we were merely readers, not writers, 
there were still very strong presumptions, which now seem childish, about the fact that you could get people to pay attention to something that was of interest to them, but they might not have been able to articulate it before you attract their attention, so that there's a way to reward that attention, that the attention by itself wasn't that important, and in certain ways it could be taken for granted, those ways being the institutions of the press that were, if not thriving, then at least able to survive in the market. Things weren't going bankrupt as they have been since. And perhaps the new models of business online can also provide something like that. I don't know, but it's what I'm hoping for. Definitely. I think what's occurred since the rise of social media is the decline in the prestige of traditional media. But I would say less so with reportage and more so with commentary. Because previously, something like the New York Times in the US or the Sunday Times in the UK had such a level of institutional respect that if you were writing for them, you were assumed to be someone worth listening to. Whereas now, because we have such a level of exposure to commentators through Twitter or blogs or similar platforms, commentators are being judged more on what they have to offer as individuals. So some people who seem more boring or more hysterical have lost a lot of the respect that they once held because they're being judged, sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly, on their own merits rather than by association with more traditional outlets. Yeah, I think that's certainly the case, and it's very revealing how harsh the judgment is. It's not coordinated, it's not deliberate, it's what we like to call organic, which is not a word I like, I think it's deceptive. But there is a lot to be said for the fact that the media democratized vastly, rapidly, unpredictably with the rise of the internet, and so all the people who had megaphones before can barely squeak out or shout now, and when once we're judged as it were individually, most of us seem to come up very, very short, not only of our own, no doubt, inflated self-regard, but also of any public standard that people could be okay with for establishing who's worth listening to. Having said what I said, it would also be a mistake to imagine that it's necessarily become more meritocratic because the standards by which individuals are judged through social media aren't necessarily reflective of the standards by which we should judge quality opinions, quality writing. The ability to compose a retweetable tweet doesn't necessarily correlate with the ability to compose a 3,000-word essay or an 800-word article. But increasingly, we're seeing that kind of online relatability with whatever demographics is being assumed to represent quality across all other forms of communication. Yeah, so we have a ready-made equivalence between success on an internet platform, the ability to monetize that success at whatever mm -hmm. level on whatever model, and relevance or timeliness. And this is hilariously misguided. I think we're still stuck judging a new medium, digital technology, by old standards that came from TV technology. TV made a lot of unpopular people popular because they were the only ones appearing, as it were. They were the only ones famous. The press itself got a new breath of life from television since fairly unpopular writers or ideas could become popular through the popular medium of TV. TV was always both news and entertainment, and uh, for an image you might especially like, it was always wrestling. It was always mm -hmm. heroes and heels, it was always good guys and bad guys, and everybody loved that particular narrative that's now turning into massive amounts of hysteria online. 
because it turns out you can no longer defeat that enemy. Your hero will not slay the dragon. However, the language of Twitter turns into slaying, destructing, annihilating, slaughtering people with whom you disagree. Nevertheless, they rise again. There are no consequences to words. This would seem to be the shocking thing that the internet has revealed. Whatever you say doesn't really matter. I mean, it depends on the words as well, in as much as there's a certain class of words which are deemed offensive and which can result in social consequences. And then there's merely being catastrophically wrong, which doesn't. Yeah, that's so, a very good point. If I make an appallingly misjudged decision to endorse a particular war, for example, I can be fairly secure in knowing that I'll have no consequences on my life. But if I make the mistake of calling a transgender person by the wrong pronouns, I can be very sure of immediate social consequences. Yeah, so there's a very kind of superficial code of conduct, which, again, doesn't correlate with any objective standard by which we should judge people worthy of respect for their opinions. Yeah, I think that's very well put, and it gets to what I was saying. There's a difference between the verbal issues and the non-verbal issues. As civilized people, we hope that talking about things, even without institutional deliberation in politics or what have you, can have an effect on society... And it turns out that the only way this is possible now is not by the words referring to deeds or events and talking about the world. It's about the words in themselves, which could be policed to a hysterical extent out of an impotent rage that there's no going from words to deeds. You can only punish people for their words as words. It's a remarkable departure from any idea of judging events or talking about things to strictly enforcing the things said in a desperate attempt to believe that the things said still matter. Absolutely. I think there's an ideological aspect to that. Obviously, there are ideological roots to political correctness, but I think it also just emerges from the medium whereby people who aren't necessarily interested in or equipped to comment on matters of policy or art can make themselves contributors to discourse just by internalizing the particular rules of the kind of game of discourse that we play on social media, whereby if you say certain things, you're bad, and if you don't say certain things, you're good, and it's very easy to judge where people fall on this particular dichotomy. And of course, both sides have their rules. It's not just leftists judging people for being problematic. Right-wing people can judge left-wingers for saying certain things, even if they're far more trivial than the deeper ideological or political goals of the left. But there's an extent to which it's an unconscious attempt to democratize commentary so that everyone can contribute to this kind of point-and-shout malaise. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think that in a strange way, people are rediscovering partisanship. I think the ideologies are mostly fake, since it's people who are looking for a reason for their anger. The tone of their speeches reveals far more than anything they say. But also because people aren't becoming that much more interested in politics, it's just much more discussed because it's such a vehicle for anger, and therefore for some sense of right and wrong. People are desperately looking for some way to popularize indignation to the level where it feels like, again, we know who we are, what we're for, or at least what we're against, and we'll deal with for later. It's trying to figure out that we're human beings because we're indignant about certain things, and if enough of us do it, then that means we can tell the difference between being human and being a robot. 
but in fact the robots are in on the indignation act as well because <laughs> how could you not it's twitter of course there are robots and then in strange ways people are becoming increasingly robotic in their speeches as well and in the simple performances of liking retweeting subtweeting and so on and so forth these are people serving machines or a corporation even without realizing it it's hard for the people to figure out a way in which to be people who are using rather than being used by an instrument, as people say, or a tool. And it's remarkable how little substance there can be behind this kind of partisan divide. I was watching this very stupid and yet somehow very fascinating video by a group of ladies who called themselves the Deplorable Choir. And they'd made this video where they were saying, we don't care if you're black, we don't care if you're white. We don't care if you're gay, we don't care if you're straight, we don't care if you're man or woman or trans, but vote for Trump. And there was absolutely no affirmative reason as to why you should vote for Trump. Obviously, it was a song, so I'm not expecting deep levels of political theory, but there was nothing about the Republican platform or the Democrat platform. It was a very, very liberal song, like everyone should be accepted, but also vote for Trump. So they're obviously grifters, but also a lot of people on either side of the partisan divide are just clinging to certain symbols that identify them as part of a particular group and then acting on their membership of that group. Yeah, it's funny in a way that the internet has finally told people to be fully individualistic by creating any number of identities they might choose to create and express themselves that way, put their insides outside not necessarily let it all hang out, but certainly orchestrate their lives in various identities online. And instead of getting more individualism, we are getting far more conformism. Politics tries to arrange this conformism, celebrity tries to arrange this conformism, but also the technology itself. It's hilarious that people who keep being hysterical about each other's supposed propaganda or fake news or all these silly things that don't really add up to anything are completely blind to the fact that their actions are guided by algorithms, whether it's Google or Twitter or whatever, that nobody understands or scrutinizes. They're invisible to us, we just hope to succeed by them by magic. Facebook is a great example because for a while there was this great thriving of Facebook-based publishing, various kinds of listicles, clickbait, and then one day Facebook changed the algorithms by which it promotes or refuses to promote things to a fake newspaper, the feed, and all of a sudden everybody went under and vast quantities of venture capital and even higher hopes were all wasted overnight. And nobody ever thought to think about the ground on which they stand. It turns out to mm -hmm. shift from under them without predictability or any backup plan. But that's true of the Twitter algorithms, it's true of Google algorithms, it's true of all these things. There is a mystery box somewhere out there that we hope will make us somehow more popular or more influential, but we have no idea what the hell that thing is. That's a great point. I mean, these platforms have existed for a remarkably short amount of time. And yet, up until a couple of years ago, and for many people still, we kind of assumed that they were just a fact of life and they would always be there and we could use them as we pleased. And people built careers on them, they built businesses on them. And as you say, to some extent, they were just built on sand. And sometimes that sand falls away. I remember when I would watch uh, YouTube videos around 2015, 2016, and popular YouTubers were always trumpeting about how they were the new media and the old media was irrelevant and dying and doomed. And as far as I can tell, all it took was one or two Wall Street Journal articles about problematic YouTubers. And YouTube said, all right, we're taking away your money. And these YouTubers were just dead in the water because they had no means of getting funding. 
all of this institutional architecture that they've completely taken for granted, as one takes for granted the ground on which one stands, had disappeared. Yeah, we're shockingly new simply by reason of ephemerality. We have no idea whether five years from now the job will not radically transform in who knows what way. And that's, of course, tied up with the fact that the internet is for young people more than it is for old people. And whenever it gets to an old people medium, it has to change again. Like Facebook had to buy Instagram because Facebook is for old people and young people are on Instagram. It's tough, but there it is. Who knows what will happen next? That's why they bought WhatsApp as well. Young people were actually on WhatsApp rather than, well, old people things like Facebook. And presumably this at least allows for the possibility of sudden shifts since there are still platforms emerging that may latch on to some new idea, but it's not clear yet. What's so far obvious is that all the money that went into advertising for the press is now owned by Facebook and Google. That's where the money is in advertising. And for all the notion of internet-based organization, touting things like Facebook's relationship to the Arab Spring, but of course maybe not Facebook's relationship to the 2016 elections, because that politically just looks much worse, at least in the press, that sort of stuff turned out to be a failure. Neither can the platforms themselves organize what they want. As you pointed out, what they can do is destroy people with whom they disagree vehemently. But that's merely a negative action, and it doesn't say anything about what will happen next, not even whether they can really stop this stuff. What if people just get angrier? But also other organizations, people who make themselves into martyrs of free speech, don't seem to have much talent for organization to come up with any alternative for monetization or for community of writer and audience. It's remarkably clueless as an activity. No, I think people depended on these remarkably few companies as a means of broadcasting and collecting money. And they've become so dominant that it's extremely difficult to build alternative institutions. I was checking out some video streaming website that was marketing itself as like the free speech video streaming website. And as far as I can tell, it was relying entirely on Vimeo as a means of hosting their videos. So if Vimeo one day says, oh, we see what you're doing here, you're not using our stuff, they're completely screwed. There's a kind of right-wing eccentric comedian my attention was drawn to the other day who'd been kicked off YouTube subscription service and PayPal, and he was having money mailed to him in the post, which seemed very quaint, but is not a reliable means of building a source of income. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not going to, I don't want to mock these people because, I mean, if I was thrown off Twitter, I would be in no better place. If my PayPal was closed down tomorrow, I'd find it extremely difficult to collect income. It's remarkably difficult to build these alternative institutions because, to a large extent, we were so complacent about the state of the internet and just imagined that this was how things were going to be. Yeah, that's actually going to become a big deal because that part really can be politicized in two ways. One of them is making a scandal out of whether any of these platforms are viewpoint neutral or in fact discriminating against users, discrimination or hypocrisy in moral speak would be still a very powerful accusation and it could lead to not only the bad kind of publicity for a platform but governmental action or at least political furor. Politicians are getting in on the act and that is going to turn into a very significant challenge to what are very few platforms run by very few people, all of them in Silicon Valley it would seem, and who are, for that reason of localization, easily painted as oligarchs and therefore the enemy of democracy, 
of digital democracy. So that is likely to become a shock because if it's a matter of who can speak or who can make money out of his work, this is going to get a lot of anger and could very rapidly lead to organization politically, litigation, you know, lose one election and things might turn quite dangerous. So that really is likely to happen. The other part, however, is it was a stranger fact of the internet, the 4chan part of the internet, the dark, scary places where decent people wouldn't go, but which are remarkably popular. You mentioned this guy having to have recourse to other platforms, other means of payment. I remember reading an article, I think this year, about how guns and ammo accounts and channels that were banned on YouTube or elsewhere would go on a porn site, because mm. there they could post. So there's a separation in this other way of the internet between the respectable internet that supposedly is at least curated by a few corporations, a few ideologically progressive types, and on the other hand, the dark and dirty internet, which is supposedly dangerous, it's tied supposedly to violence, to terrorism even, and that of course lends it more potency than it would otherwise have, but also it seems to be as yet unconquerable. And so there's this other distinction or even a massive disjunction in what the internet is going to look like. Some part of it might not end up in corporate hands because it's not respectable and it might not make enough money, but it might have vast numbers of people behind it. Yeah, the internet's always had a wild west. And to some extent, when the internet began, it was just more dominant. The internet was a wild west, and it's been slowly pushed into various corners of the World Wide Web. But it's always endured in some form. I think to some extent, just because the people who are most obsessed with the technology are often quite extreme characters. For example, a lot of the alternative right infrastructure entirely depended on the otherworldly technologies of one white supremacist hacker living in Ukraine or Moldova or somewhere. So I think we'll increasingly see attempts to develop new means of existing outside mainstream platforms and the attempts of Silicon Valley or governments to neutralize it or overcome it depend on the level of technical genius they can commandeer. There certainly seems to be an audience for these things, and so Silicon Valley is trapped, instead of trying to build a new digital public space, in between fending off a partisan challenge that's going to get really ugly, really political, and is actually going to be involved in elections, in fundraising for politicians, is going to matter. And on the other hand, this other matter, the distinction between the really bizarre people and the people who put up with the kind of moral censorship that platforms increasingly implement. I don't know how these two different challenges are going to play out. There's certainly a lot of power behind the tech platforms, but they're no longer simply the future. They themselves don't have a future. There's no next version of Facebook or Twitter that supposedly is going to fix problems they've identified, whether ideologically or technologically. In a very important way, social media hasn't taken off the ground, despite billions of users, and it's not clear how it is going to get in the air. We're just running out of airstrip. The notion behind social media seems to be essentially globalization. Facebook can make friends across the world, so can Instagram, so can Twitter. It's an essentially cosmopolitan, placeless experience, and therefore has no room for local communities or the disagreements that different cultures would come up with. But that's obviously not true anymore. Facebook is never going to win over China and various oh. tyrannies or various other countries are never going to be won over just like Hollywood never won over India. 
the limits on globalization are oh. more and more serious and therefore the entire ideology behind the technology has to be revised. You have to think about the speeches that are sort of public, sort of private on Twitter or elsewhere in a strangely different way. You have to admit there are all sorts of borders and there are all sorts of rules that the people within those borders get to make up and nobody seems to have any ideas about how that could be done. We neither have alternatives to the platforms nor any faith in the platforms. That's a strange thing to be in since we all thought this would be forever as soon as the smartphone was invented. That's true. And just on the matter of free speech and censorship, I've been reading about attempts by conservatives to promote government regulation of social media to institute certain legislative safeguards, which would make it harder for people to be deplatformed. And I'm definitely no expert on what that regulation would entail. But obviously, the mainstream conservative response has been, you shouldn't have government intrusion in private enterprise. If you want a free speech platform, create it yourself. But it's a terribly quaint way of seeing the world. It's not like saying if you live in a village and there's a grocery shop that you dislike, set up another grocery shop. It's like saying you live in a village, there's a grocery shop, and the guy who owns the grocery shop, he also controls all the farms and he controls the roads and he controls all the local trucking companies and he's also involved in the water supply. Now go and create your own grocery shop. <laughs> Yeah. So while I think there's definitely room for debate about what regulation could entail, this slightly quaint notion of private enterprise just isn't really applicable to the status of tech giants in the modern world. Yeah, as I said, I think people like Zuckerberg or Jack of Twitter fame are stuck in the past of a decade back, but it's obvious that conservatives are stuck in a far more remote past that they do not even understand what has happened to public discourse, which is now increasingly, exclusively almost privately hosted in a very small number of hands. The notion that people are going to put up with this, whatever the legal status or the property rights theory, is nuts on the face of it. This is just not going to happen. In a way, we've been told for years by savvy people that if you're not paying for a product, you are the product. You wasting your life away is what it takes for Zuckerberg to be a billionaire. And that is in a sense true, but people don't seem to see that that comes with a flip side. Since nobody pays for anything on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, it also means that in some strange way they do have a sense of ownership. You could call it squatter's rights or whatever, but this could really get out of hand for platforms that have found that they're not in control of what happens. They're not in control of the ideology or the tone or the future of the platform. The users in some strange way are. That does lead the way to a new understanding of politics that will be way more regulatory. And I think there are two very different approaches or visions because approaches have not yet been articulated. One vision, I think, is the Zuckerberg vision, which is you get in bed with the government, with the administrative state. You get the kind of regulation that you want because it will simply mean that from now on the state itself guarantees what you're doing. It'll just stamp your robots. The algorithms will be tweaked in some strange political way behind doors and therefore the government will be okay with it. But there is this different idea that's now getting traction indeed among conservatives, younger conservatives, angrier conservatives who are way more tech-savvy than the really old, really out-of-it people who were interviewing Zuckerberg in Congress who are childish. They have no idea what's happening in the world and no desire to learn. And this other idea would mean either very harsh control politically for enforcing viewpoint neutrality 
should be the free speech option, or on the other hand, something different, attacks on these platforms until they grow weak, litigation, investigations, using the powers of the state against them. And the interesting thing that I can see is that there's absolutely no, and I mean none, real constituency for free speech. There's nobody on the internet who wants, you know, whatever free speech would amount to, whatever viewpoint neutrality would amount to. I would say that the last gentleman desire it piously, but look around at how people actually behave. Nobody wants a viewpoint neutrality or free speech. What they want is some kind of power or influence or legitimacy for anger, hatred, things like that. Yeah, it's true. I mean, this is a minor example, but one trend I've noticed is people who are very active in campaigning for free speech are often incredibly litigious. And that's not, in principle, a contradiction. You can be for the freedom to express an opinion, but not the freedom to express a defamatory assertion. But they are often litigious beyond that principled distinction. Because, at least to some extent, among many people, support for free speech is a means of either signaling oneself as an oppressed dissident or just virtue signaling. Signaling oneself as the kind of open and tolerant liberal person that it's good to chat with. Yeah, I think that's uh, a very good point that if you think about it, even the mythology of free speech is we're the underdogs nobly advancing some cause from the status of negligible minority. <laughs> that concedes defeat in advance. I mean, it might make some guy money or might make for a bit of fame or a bit of a following, but that's all essentially transient. Yeah, it's, it's certainly true. The irony, though, is nobody is really for free speech, but very few people would come out and say, I'm opposed to free speech. I see some Catholic integralists. I see some left-wing tankies. But even people on the far right will rarely come out and say, I'm for, I'm for regulating speech. Obviously, it does make sense for them because of their status in society. It would be a remarkably low status opinion, even if we kind of grant that very few people hold it. I mean, I'm in many senses not for free speech. To a large extent, I'm in favor of free inquiry, free artistic expression. But there are definitely forms of behavior in the street that I would think would be criminally abusive. There are definitely forms of behavior on social media platforms that I would consider just too obscene to be freely available to anyone who happens to be on the internet. And I think most people have those limits as well. But for some reason, it's a remarkably low status opinion to express. Yeah. I guess because none of us want to be on the wrong end of being censored and then looking like rather a fool when we protest about it. Yeah, you know, it's hard to define freedom since it would put us on the wrong side of the equality issue. Who am I to censor somebody else? And certainly, as you point out, I wouldn't want to be censored by somebody else. I don't want to be in that situation of inequality of power. And so maybe pipe down about this. I share your opinions and also your judgment that, in fact, most of us, the vast majority, do hold the same exact opinion, since otherwise there wouldn't be so much free-floating indignation, so much anger, and how dare you, sir, how dare you? which is the prevalent way social media works. Nobody likes to be criticized. Partly that's the problem with the television celebrity design of the platforms, become popular, get the likes. There's a reason we don't have a dislike button on Facebook or you can make a heart but you can't break a heart in the Twitter ideology. <laughs> that does not correspond either to human experience or to Twitter experience, which is way more powered by anger and hatred than it is about love and hearts. Somehow nobody dares express this because nobody believes it could become a guide for what most of us want and are looking for. 
True, and there's definitely a distinction between the belief that one should be legally free to say something and the belief that one should be free from consequences to saying it. As much as that distinction is simplified to the point of absurdity, I mean, just to take one example, I think people should be legally free to express Holocaust denial. But that doesn't mean that if someone says it in public, I'm going to say, well, that's a very interesting point of view and I'd like to offer you this career. Yep. But also that becomes used in an extreme way on the internet where it doesn't just become, I'd rather not associate with you. And if you insist on talking to me in this way, I'm going to be rather rude. It becomes, well, you're legally free to say this. But if you say this, I'm not going to not give you a job. I'm going to try and get you sacked from your job. And I'm going to bully everyone who associates with you into disassociating from you. And I'm going to find out your family's names and print them as well so that they can't get a job. But you're still legally free to say it, which becomes, unless someone really loves being completely hermetic with no source of income, it's not a very important distinction. Yeah, that's true. And I see two big problems here that I don't really see how they're going to be addressed. One of them is an internet problem. The internet doesn't matter in a strange way in anybody's personal experience. Most people aren't happier or feel more human because of their social media, etc. And that leads to a certain desire to blame somebody for it. We were all promised some kind of future once the smartphone and the social media apps collided. And that future isn't materializing and everybody's super angry about it. And if we're not going to have a future, we're going to do the next best thing, which is have a reckoning. Find out who's to blame for this and possibly destroy them. And then there's this other problem that's also tied up with the lack of a future, which is why you'd want to destroy somebody's life in the real world. And I think that's because if there's no forward for the internet, all it can really do is rearrange a few things in the world of flesh. In the most important sense, I think Twitter mobs or things like that are essentially signs of impotence. It's a cruelty bred of impotence, both psychologically but also practically. This is not going to change the world. It doesn't accumulate over the years the kinds of power of a moral code that would be punitive and that would turn into a sense of shame. People are fearful of what the consequences of speaking up might be, but nobody's believing more than they did before in internet-based morality. It carries absolutely no authority. Nobody is thinking that the Twitter people or Facebook people or whoever should be arbiters of our communications or of our behavior. If anything, we hate these people. They used to have good liberal or even progressive cred, but now they don't. Even progressive and liberals hate them because they want to blame them for losing elections. Maybe it's true and maybe it's not, but it certainly has changed what people believe about the boys billionaire that we're supposed to deliver on the future. The internet is now Neverland, so far as communications are concerned. A lot of people trying to be Peter Pan, and it turns out it doesn't work. You're not gaining any kind of superpowers, any kind of perpetual youth or relevance, and you're not gaining anything else either. Absolutely. Um, I can't remember what his name is, but the creator of MySpace... I remember he was like automatically friends with everyone who created a MySpace page. And he was just this kind of normal looking guy who in his profile picture was just smiling at the camera. And I can't remember his name, but let's call him Matt. It wasn't Matt, but let's call him Matt. And it was like Matt from MySpace. And he just sold MySpace when it peaked and left with all his money. And he must be the happiest person in big tech because nobody has a bad word to say about him because he sold it before it ran into any of these problems. And he's extremely rich. And I think he must have a very enviable life. Because as you say, people like Jack Dorsey, Mark Zuckerberg, even though we all use their platforms, are figures of just intense disdain. And from both sides. 
So if Jack ever posts a tweet, half the people responding to it are saying, you dreadful liberal, stop kicking us off your platform. And the other half are saying, uh, you dreadful fascist enabler, kick more Nazis off your platform. They must be far more unpopular than the president, as divisive as he is, because nobody likes them. Um, <laughs> you know, they're still extremely rich and powerful, so I'm definitely not remarkably sympathetic towards them. But it is a very odd position they hold as these kings, really, but kings without any regard among the people. So I think definitely social media regulation would be remarkably popular among the constituencies of whoever happens to be president. So it would be very popular among Republicans if Donald Trump decides to do it. And alternatively, if Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris become president, it's going to become very popular, well, prohibitive social media legislation. So you can't say this online. You can't keep this person anonymous. You can't allow this person to have a source of income. It's going to become very popular among liberals and left-wingers if they become president. So I've never really reflected on this before, actually, but conservatives who do oppose regulation should be prepared, I think, for how tremendously popular it's going to become in the other direction. Well, when and if the Democrats prevail in an election. Yep. And everybody knows that at some level it's coming because parties come and go. Candidates come and go. None of this stuff is set in stone. So no kind of compromise or no kind of habit. Well, it's been like this for a year or two. Eh. Well, it's not going to stay that way. And mm. one way to look at the conflation of the legal issue of free speech and the moral issue of how we treat each other and talk to each other and on the other hand, the conflation of the political issue of partisanship pushing Silicon Valley and social media apps into more dangerous territory and more untenable position with this other internet problem of the difference between the respectable and the dirty internet. The way all of this is coming together for now is woke capital. Corporations mm. that were hated by progressives until the day before yesterday are now embraced because they flew the rainbow flag or they made some pious statement about inclusiveness. And it does seem like from the money point of view as opposed to the moral or political point of view, capital is desperately hoping that if you get woke, you can still sell stuff. You can still attract people to your fantasies. But I think that the hatred of the internet reveals essentially a dissatisfaction with that combination of political economy with consumer corporations and, on the other hand, fantasies about the future. You can be whatever you want to be, you can create whatever identities you want to create, you can get with whatever trend you think might get you attention. And all of this seems to be collapsing. There's an entire fantasy land political economy that is collapsing. And I don't think corporations are going to manage to keep the advertising, the advertising money and the stuff they sell by advertising as people become ever more hateful. Neither the internet as a poster or a fantasy nor the real world as where you get to objectify your will by buying things is holding up very well. What's happening to political parties which are weak, disgraceful and more and more hijacked is happening really everywhere in society. There's an entire political economy model that's collapsing because Facebook really is the perfect image of what capitalism has been for a while, which is you give your life to fantasies to power up the economic growth, which is itself a fantasy. The West is economically growing supposedly because we invest in things that don't matter and we give our lives to them in the hope that they will matter and that the growth will turn into some big revelation of a better life. It's not. Mm. People kind of hate their lives and are not shy about it. That's the important thing about the internet. Nobody is shy about how much they hate the way things are. 
That's a good point. I think one non-ideological factor behind modern polarization and modern rage is previously people knew they didn't really contribute to the direction of the world. They had no means of doing so, and they had no means of really conceiving themselves as people who could do so on a national or an international level. And the internet did offer this illusion of being able to become a player in politics. And that illusion has definitely broken down. And we've seen these hierarchies emerge on social media. I think the blue tick is a great example. I mean, even blue ticks hate blue ticks. It's a symbol of just elitism or undeserved institutional privilege. And people become increasingly embittered realizing that what they thought was an opportunity to become a participant in mainstream discourse has given them nothing but 25 followers, and it's found them shouting into the void of commenting on journalists or politicians' opinions, and rarely even getting a like in response. And it's amplified that sense of obscurity and powerlessness that previously many people just kind of took for granted because that was all there was and there was no means of hoping for anything else. So people have become increasingly outraged by that increasing awareness of their own powerlessness because it's staring them in the face every day when they log on to Twitter and find out that nobody's responding to them and nobody's following them. And yet some idiot Brooklynite has a blue tick for talking about what a terrible person they are and people like them are and seems to be doing very well for themselves by doing so. Yeah, I think this is a very important fact that previously we all suspected we kind of didn't matter, but now we know for sure. And mm. it's both a public experience and a private experience. Things wouldn't be so bad if, say, people in their private messaging wouldn't become upset, if not depressed or angry, because they sent a message to some friend and they didn't answer. And now I have the technology to know that you received that <laughs> message. You read it even. Why aren't you answering? Why do you hate me? What have I done to you? Why are you such an asshole? These sorts of experiences are, of course, far more powerful for teenagers than they would be for retirees, and they go on a kind of continuum in between. But as people get used to the notion that there's a kind of immediacy to digital technology, you can check more and more and more, just like you can go back through somebody's past history, whether in your chats or on their Twitter timeline or what have you, and drag up the past, you can do that with exact precision. The memory power of the internet is immense and unique, and it's proving how irrelevant we are and how forgotten we are instantly in a way that was not available to mankind before. You know, previously it was celebrities that we were always shocked that they're still alive when we read their obituaries. I thought they were long dead. They had this experience of vanishing from public memory. Now we all vanish continuously because we're all desperately trying to become celebrities. I want some of that attention. I want some of that magical influence. I want to be loved. And it turns out we're always looking for love in the wrong places online. There's something shockingly ghostly about it. The more politics itself is driven into the ether, into the virtual realm, the less anybody's satisfied by it. Its immediacy is tied up with the fact that it has no consequences. That's a new experience for people, and existentially, it might be good for them to realize this is mortality, people, one second at a time. One person who doesn't care about you at a time. But it also has very drastic consequences psychologically and socially, it seems. Uh, absolutely, because it does breed resentment towards one's status in life. Nobody minds as much about being poor as the person who lives next to a rich man. 
and nobody minds as much about being ignored as the person who's faced with an extremely socially successful or influential person. Now there's a lot of leveling with regards to superficial access to people. We have access to the thoughts of famous people and influential people, but that's not the same as access, the kind of access that would lead to interaction, which has been quite an embittering experience. And I think, I thought, I think you make a very good point about private lives as well, it's true. I remember when I was growing up in school and mobile phones had just been introduced and girls especially would get remarkably emotional if they'd sent a text message to their boyfriend at the time and he hadn't responded in half an hour because the assumption was that if it was a mobile phone, you could carry it anywhere. Whereas if you called someone and they weren't at home, there are a million reasons they could be away from the home and that was understandable. And now, as you say, yeah, we have graphic proof of whether somebody's ignoring us or not, which I'm sure doesn't have positive consequences for social trust because it does breed a kind of suspicion as well. I wonder how many relationships have broken down because someone didn't respond to a messenger, instant message quickly enough. I don't know. It certainly must be affecting most of them, even if not breaking down most of them. We have turned over to technology to administer our mortality. And this rational administration through tech is on the one hand super mysterious, as I said, none of us have any idea how any of these technologies work. How do they decide these things? Who gets to be popular and who doesn't simply by technological fiat? Who knows? I can only see sort of what changes. Who is newly famous? I don't remember who was famous last year because they're all forgotten. But you know, you see new things come up. And why? I don't know. But there is a psychological correlative to this technological administration, which is that now we really do know how little we matter to anybody. The more immediate and technologically rational it becomes, the more painful in a way it becomes. There is a meritocratic statement on how irrelevant I am. If people don't retweet what I tweet, or if I don't even tweet things anymore, then yeah, that's it. That's nothingness. That's oblivion, and it is meritocratically proven. Silicon Valley has taught us something that, you know, Christians used to tell you that you're all gonna die. This world is a veil of tears. Square with it. We don't want to square with it. I don't want to square with it. But now, well, everybody's squaring with it on the worst terms you could imagine. It is an immediate psychological experience. We're used to these things. We think they're part of society and part of humanity. And because we don't experience the robots as robots, we think of ourselves instead as more and more lonely and ignored. Yeah, this will probably change in a very significant way. I don't know how, but I think it will be soon. There are certainly forms of healthy internet online localism as well, in a weird sense. You do get communities developing of otherwise obscure people who are drawn together by a shared interest or just a shared way of thinking and communicating, which I'm sure can be very productive, especially for people who in real life are socially inhibited by environmental or just psychological circumstance. I think it's when people have rejected that illusion of accessibility to power and fame and influence and wealth that they're probably much happier online because if they can develop that small circle of associates, that's satisfying enough for the online experience. This illusion of the achievability of power and influence and wealth and status has been remarkably powerful because, as you say, people do rise up and we can see them rising up. But the ease with which we see that obscures how rare it is. The amount of kids I've spoken to who want to be YouTubers or Instagram influencers because they've seen these people who went from being school students to internationally famed entertainers is quite poignant. 
I think that is a big, powerful democratic insight. One reason we're so resentful is that we have moved from envy to jealousy. I'm not jealous of the money of Mark Zuckerberg because I don't quite know how he made it. And I know from experience, I'm really no good at making billions of dollars. There may be a big fact that differentiates us. I might want to be richer, but I don't think I have a right to it exactly. I don't know how this thing works. I don't see why I should be a billionaire. But with celebrities, it's very different because we know intimately, immediately, continuously that we're all the same. We're Democrats. We're all the same. Why should that guy make it? He only made it by chance. Some guy became famous and all the other ones didn't simply by chance. The celebrity class doesn't have any economic or technological or any kind of authoritative leg to stand on. It's a figment of chance that some people make it and some people don't. And so on the social side, there's continuous, permanent, all-directional jealousy. Why did that guy make it and not me? That, I think, is what is destroying celebrities. We're much better now at destroying or canceling celebrities, even dragging up dead celebrities like Michael Jackson, who say they were monsters all along, even though previously we worshipped them like idols. Making up new idols is proven very, very difficult. And even maintaining old idols, whether institutions of the press or institutions of entertainment or famous people, is harder and harder and harder because there's less and less reward of whatever kind there may have been in entertainment. The fantasy is being pierced and replaced by an angry moralism driven by jealousy. Why should these other people have millions of followers when they're no better than me? Screw it all. Yeah, that sense of awe that people would have had for an Elvis or a Michael Jackson has disappeared because of the means by which they became famous was so mysterious. If I watched Elvis on TV, I would have absolutely no idea how he'd achieved that level of fame. Whereas when people are famous via the means of social media or reality television, we can see how it happens. And as you say, we can't see such a radical difference between themselves and us. But also just the things people do to become famous. I mean, talking into a webcam, posing on a website for photographs, writing tweets. Anyone can do that. But like you say, it often seems rather random as to who succeeds and who fails. Whereas, to take another example, if I watch football, I'm very aware of why Lionel Messi is famous and I'm not because it's self-evident to anyone except someone who's completely upset, insane, that he's fantastically more talented than I am. But if somebody watches, I don't know, insert conservative or left-wing commentator here, post some viral tweets, or insert gaming let's play it here, show you through Counter-Strike, the divide between them and us is much less easy to grasp, which I'm sure also breeds a kind of disdain and a kind of bitterness. Yeah, this is one of the things that I've noticed that seems to make perfect sense and be troubling at the same time, that the newest generation of celebrities, gamers, YouTubers, there, as opposed to somebody in Hollywood or in politics, fans are very, very comfortable with stalking, threatening, humiliating, saying horrifying things, sending SWAT to their door. The equality can become very, very dangerous all of a sudden. You're no sooner set up as an idol than people want to tear you down. So there Mm. doesn't seem to be any life in this first generation of social media celebrities who are just local TV as it used to be, but with a wider reach and with absolutely no restraints on the hatred that generates, not for any discernible reason, but simply because people are quite hateful and they found a likely target, one that is not protected by the old pieties of celebrities who are above us. 
because people are famous on these platforms as themselves. So their supporters and detractors feel an increased level of ownership over them. I remember watching a video by PewDiePie, the most popular YouTuber, where he was just pleading with people not to show up at his door and knock on his door because they just assumed that because he was the product, they should have access to that product. If you're successful on these platforms, people scrutinize every aspect of your life rather than just the content you're putting out. I had a line in a piece recently where if people aren't satisfied with your content, you become the content. Uh, there's a term called the lol cow, which is where people are just squeezing the lols out of the distended udders of ridiculous people online. Because, yeah, anything be goes. For being loathed, for being actively hated, that could be a source of fame, however troubling it is. And so we see that all celebrity tends to scandal, all TV tends to reality TV, and the creatures of reality TV are sorry messes, and people only make them worse. People feel a desire and a right to make it even worse for people who are already in a sorry or even pathetic state. And that, I think, shows that the previous idea about what distinguished the persons we were looking at from the rest of us has fully collapsed. And mm. it can get really, really ugly the newer the form of celebrity is. It's way more perishable, way more degenerate, and leads to way more anger and fantasies of violence. Time was when we hired an industry of paparazzi to destroy the privacy of people because beauty wasn't enough until we saw people naked or what have you. Then we progressed to these people willingly debasing themselves sexually up to sex tapes just to get that attention. And now it's gotten to the point where indeed people feel a kind of property in somebody's private life and his private misery because it's one last source of entertainment. It's not just not pretty, but it shows, since the users are so young, something about society that adults don't see, partly because they do it less, partly because they're institutionalized more. These other things that are too new to be truly institutionalized show a part of society that the thing that their parents never want to see about their kids. Parents love their kids, but you know, some of those kids are awful, and all of them are a little evil, <laughs> but nobody wants to see that. Well, it's not possible um. to defend the innocence of the young on the internet either from predatory behavior, but also from their own evil. One of my favorite writers, Sarah Perry, who writes for Ribbon Farm, and she's written for other smaller websites like Carcination. She wrote a good piece once about how the kind of childhood freedom to roam about your neighborhood and the surrounding streets and fields and woodlands has rapidly disappeared thanks to the ubiquity of cars, stranger danger paranoia, the popularity of screens and technological means of entertainment, but how the internet, in a sense, has become a space about which to roam, which can be relatively innocent when friends get together to play World of Warcraft or whatever. But just as I'm sure in the past, kids would go out and indulge more dark or perverse forms of entertainment when the parents weren't looking. This definitely happens on the internet as well, except there's much easier access to materials which enable darker and more perverse forms of exploration. So obviously it's easy to get too paranoid about that. I wrote an article this week about a girl who'd been murdered by someone she'd met online. And it was a terrible story. But my conclusion was basically that this is probably going to continue to be a rare event. We shouldn't exceptionalize it too much. We should probably just consider it in the context of the thousands of people who are murdered every year by partners or people who want to become their partners. So we shouldn't get too paranoid about it. But there is definitely a new morbidity, a new form of perverse thrill-seeking among young people. 
And I also think it speaks to a lack of identity among young people where they identify so closely with online celebrities. And so if those online celebrities disappoint them or if they outgrow them, it becomes a reason to tear them down because those young people are tearing down the part of themselves that ever admired them in the first place, which is very destructive, obviously. Yeah, I think that's true. That First of all, it's not that the bizarre is getting out of control and will have a breakdown or societal collapse. The bizarre is just bizarre. The problem is the normal and how morbid it is. Mm. That the normal is getting bizarre is the problem, not as going to lead to some terrifying consequences. Moralistic fears on left or right of this are simply attempts to take control of something without actually doing the social work it would take to offer people better lives, which is what it would actually mm. take. People are hateful. Because the internet is the way they show how they feel about the rest of the world. Unfortunately, when once you identify your interiority with something that's public and remembered by digital technology, then things get out of hand. You might feel the need to live up or live down to that, but also gradually you might not realize that you're different to all these things. You might not realize what you there is there without these things. Back when there were small enough clans, tribes, or even political associations of a large size where people truly and deeply identified with that association, they didn't know what they might be otherwise. The typical rule of the ancient world was that if your city was conquered, you abandoned your gods, because obviously they weren't that strong or good enough. Your entire identity down to your fate was abandoned the second the laws didn't protect you. To some extent, this is how we feel about technology. The identification can be so strong, especially for younger people, that without any social catastrophe or tragic situation, people just don't know who they are anymore. And they can Mm. experience themselves as increasingly chaotic. Putting your individuality into the memory of robots has turned out not to be a good safeguard of individuality. I don't know what's going to happen with people who want to upload their souls or cryogenize their brains because they hope that in the future people will care. Trust me, they won't. People don't care about you now. (laughs) But certainly this notion of transforming your soul into several accounts on several social media apps is not working out. It's not the problem of the bizarre. It's a problem of the normal. People are looking for things in life that they simply are not getting. It would be shocking if they weren't crazy and angry and hateful. How are people supposed to react to the stuff they grew up hoping for that's disappointing them all the time? One thing I wrote in this piece this week was that many parents probably should take more of an active interest in what their kids do online, but it's not so much to prevent them from doing things online as a kind of judge over what they do. It's more because if their kids are involved in morbid or generally unhealthy things online, it probably speaks to a lack of meaning in their real life and they need more human connection which is probably what they're missing more than someone just to tell them what to do and what not to do. Because the fact that we have invested so much of our ambition, so much of our self-image in the internet wouldn't have taken place if we were satisfied elsewhere. So there is a broader kind of social dislocation that it's symptomatic of. Yeah, and since technology is to such an extent a separation of demographics, different ages do different technological things and they have no notion of each other, it's going to be really hard to bridge. And at the large social level, I don't really see what's going to happen except that social media in a couple of years will collapse. But at the individual level, it is the case that most of us wouldn't find it hard to do better. Be less insanely hopeful about stuff, be more genuinely treasuring of the stuff that's worthwhile, and let that process sift in a way that tells you, yeah, now you have some judgment, now you have some taste, there are other people you can share this with. This would be, more philosophically, put the question of the status of the beautiful. To a large extent, as long as celebrity continues, people will think that the beautiful makes you in a way immortal. 
at least for a while, you will be a god among men, an idol among the worshippers. And of course, in a situation of democracy where we all experience sameness, brutally, as nobody cares about me, that's how I know who I am. What is my individuality? The fact that nobody cares about me, that's how I am. It gets brutal. And just like politics was sucked into technology, so was celebrity. The closer it gets to us in some way immediately on screens, the farther away any kind of actual distinction, any actual mattering to anybody goes away from us. So there are hopeful dreams, there are beautiful lies, there are all these delusions that are summed up as celebrity or television fantasies that are crashing violently. Hopefully something better will replace them. I'm not sure if that's so, because so far all we have is technological corporate attempt to replicate versions of the Chinese social credit system where Instagram is hard at work to curb bullying by training robots to do more and more of this work, that is to say getting people more and more to behave in the way that the robots will let them get away with. That's a minimum of morality or decency, but it's not going to stick well. It's making people more robotic while trying to keep them building these fantasies of celebrity, of going viral. There are always, as you pointed out before, all these obvious attempts that really can work. I don't hate my Twitter because I just follow classics, history, intellectuals, and movies, or, you know, my job, or my profession, and everything works out. Some rude guy shows up, I just mute or block and move on with everything else that works out well as an isolated island. One model of what sanity would mean, especially for younger people, would be to completely break down Facebook into WhatsApp groups, into smaller, more intentional, more loyal groups, where people wouldn't treat each other like trash because they wouldn't be able to get away with it and they'd be ashamed of themselves. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an argument for decentralization, that kind of patchwork. I mean, the problem, as in politics, where the problem with localism is smaller tribes get conquered by bigger empires, it's very difficult to sustain those smaller communities online because someone comes up and buys the platform you happen to be using and the old hierarchies emerge and the old codes of conduct emerge. So maybe it would only be regulation that would achieve that. I mean, social media, it keeps evolving. I'm old enough that I've completely missed its evolution. And apparently now more young people use TikTok than YouTube. And I still haven't really worked out what TikTok is. It's, I'm a complete dinosaur now, waiting for the meteorite to hit and for me to become completely extinct. Just as Twitter made bloggers extinct, TikTok is making YouTubers extinct. And I wonder if it can keep evolving like that. But if it does break down, maybe it will break down into smaller communities, at least for a while before something new replaces it. I don't know. Yeah, I think that the technological model and the desires for some kind of universality, even so long as this keeps going, there aren't any real solutions. But this doesn't mean people won't try more and more either serious or at any rate forceful things to deal with it for better and for worse. But there's also a massive shift in the character of the technology. What digital technology is good for and what TV was good for are very, very different in terms of communication. Digital is obviously no good at broadcasting. Casting gets narrower and narrower. And that seems to be definitive of what it is. But this also comes with a few other things. It's far harder to be forgotten. Everything sticks now and people don't have even the habits of mind to hide or erase their tracks or the sort of thing that you might see in a thriller movie if they're going to be made for the digital age. Yeah, I'm always entertained by, I've never done it to be fair, but I'm not going to be an influential person. It's so easy to erase all of your tweets. 
And yet it's so common for somebody to be elected or promoted or given a particularly influential career. And then somebody goes back and finds them calling someone a fag in 2014. And their entire life they've built just collapses out from underneath them because we have yet to learn any means of covering our tracks. I'm sure that in the future, there's a whole generation of politicians and journalists who are going to be absolutely ruined when people find their racist tweets or their salacious WhatsApp messages or the nudes they were sending to people over Facebook Messenger. I I think presidents are going to fall, prime ministers are going to collapse left, right and centre. Because my generation and the generation, your generation and the generations underneath us had this outrageously naive attitude towards impermanence, well, the naive illusion of impermanence and the naive illusion of privacy. So, yeah, future investigative journalists slash smearmongers are going to have an absolutely wonderful time. Yeah, I think that we still have strangely old-fashioned habits. You know, we want all the publicity of the new world and all the privacy of the old world, but that's not going to work out together. And people aren't figuring out that you can't simply put out fantasies of yourself because everything is remembered by robots. All of these things can Mm. come out at any point, and indeed people are still shocked by this stuff. In some ways, I think the change will be we'll just brazen things out. People will care less, as indeed is already happening. But in another way, yeah, it's going to have very serious consequences on careers and in certain ways on personality. There already are jobs and have been jobs of a certain caliber, which meant that if you're going to even apply, you'd have to have had a past decades before that of just not talking, not saying what your opinion is, being secretive, being guarded. And something like that with technological power is going to be invented to fight off the fact that the robots remember everything and it can come out at any point. There's a kind of loss of innocence even about nasty stuff that we wouldn't call innocent because nobody expected it would come back. Nobody sees it coming. But it is coming. Everything is being remembered and it's only a matter of figuring out how to dig it up and to use it. People will not lack for either motive or means when it comes to this sort of stuff. It's a very transitional period for that reason. People still think in the TV terms of what's on now or what's going to be on tomorrow as though things aren't being remembered. But it's not as simple as putting on a new show. Your old shows are all remembered and they can come back to haunt people. You can try on as many identities as you please, but that doesn't mean that all the old ones go away or that you're in control of them. All of that notion that you're in control of what you put out there is going away. Also, you know, a lot of the hatred, a lot of the anger comes out of this new sense of irresponsibility. Who knows what's going to come out? Who knows what is going to come next? It's hard to believe that anything matters if nothing is stable. So, yeah, that doesn't enforce proprieties of any kind. The adaptation to a new world where your individualism will be held against you in shockingly precise, objective, technological ways... Wow, that is going to be a new thing, and in very many ways an old thing. I mean, we're going back to a medieval situation where gossip rules your life. People will talk about you or bring up things. You didn't intend it, you didn't publish it, you didn't show yourself in that way, so you don't think it's going to be done to you, but (laughs) Absolutely. And I'd like to believe we could become more forgiving. I mean, we all accept that we're deeply flawed people. And we should all accept, to some extent, obviously, this is definitely not a blanket excuse for any kind of misbehavior, but we should accept that to some extent, the internet is just documenting our flaws that were always expressed previously just in a manner where no record was kept. But I think that kind of forgiveness would come out of a more cohesive society than we have today. 
like morally, I think we should become more forgiving, assuming that people obviously have changed and made progress in their lives beyond whatever iniquity was documented on the internet. But I think that would require a level of fellow feeling that we don't have. Maybe we'll become more forgiving of our peers, but we won't become more forgiving of the other side. Yeah, realistically speaking, I'm actually looking forward to increased partisanship. At least people will have fellow feeling on that level. I hear a lot of especially sophisticated, educated people who bitch about tribalism as though that have no virtues and it's some kind That's of step down. It has lots of virtues. It does breed loyalty. It'll teach people some limits. Compared to the chaos, to the Wild West, it might be better. That's a good point. I mean, if people think that tribalism is necessarily a vice, they're effectively condemning the entire of human civilization. Obviously, it has extremes. Nobody's going to suggest that it's necessarily a virtue. But people who are living without a tribe, if you put it into different words, they're living without a community. So obviously we shouldn't promote tribalism as in everyone's saying this, so I'm going to say it as well, or everyone's doing this, so I'm going to do it as well. But the line between tribe and society is effectively semantic. So yeah, I think there's definitely something to say to that. Tribalism is probably preferable to atomization. Yeah, this has been my guiding thought for a while and maybe a good note to close on. Up until the mid-century recently, it was not possible to live without other people. You needed them for all sorts of things. The arrival of so much more administration and technology and living in front of screens and by the power that screens give you has made it possible for people to live alone among other people. You don't need to know anybody or deal with anybody. But I don't think this has that, that much future. People might realize that they do need and want to know other people and be known in return, and not on a vast, ghostly, global scale, but on far smaller scales that are more negotiable in human terms. That's true, but it definitely depends also on the kind of tribalism. Like you say, it has to be a tribalism of substance. Because as we see on the internet, people are capable of cohering around the most futile signifiers, like a pussy hat or a MAGA hat. And obviously throughout human history, we've seen people attempt to cohere around very destructive collective ideologies like kind of utopian egalitarianism or racial purity that don't really have any connection to substantive community. But yeah, a kind of fellow feeling that would lead to actual meaningful human interaction would be far more productive. But getting there will be the tricky part. And obviously that could take us another three hours of discussion to make much progress with. <laughs> that's right. I think that, you know, we've been overly critical of all sorts of things because it seems like that's what's required and that's how things are. But I think we share a certain sense that it's actually a good thing to be human. We need to get better at it, but mm. we don't need to live in fantasies out of the fear that if we tried to live like human beings, it wouldn't be worthwhile. Absolutely. I think there's definitely value in the connections the internet produces, but to a large extent, they're substitutes for the connections that life produces. That's why we have all of these weird surrogate characters online, like the e-girl, a modish one that people like to discuss, because people are building these kind of fantasy lives online. But it is... As potentially haughty as it sounds, it's no excuse for being human in a more local way, a more physical way, a more unpolished way. And it must always exist in parallel with that. Yes, indeed. It's been lovely talking to you. Some of these things I've been thinking about even more today because I was going around studying your digital print, reading your articles, that is to say. And when I publish this, I'll throw up some links. Maybe some more people can find out about what it is that you're writing to see what it means to try to document what's going on 
in a way, it's the breakdown of a social order, of a way of communication, of expectations about what is private and public. But in another way, it shows dissatisfaction with the broader world in economics and politics too. And something else is going to come out of it inevitably. What? And whether it's going to be good, livable, decent is yet to be seen. <laughs> And before we close, people, you can just hop onto Amazon and find Ben's book, Kings and Comedians, A Brief History on British-Polish Relations. I have an unusual interest in Poland because of cinema, and well, I'm from Eastern Europe, from Romania, so there's a certain fellow feeling, but it's one thing on my list right now for books, and I very much recommend it because Ben is a lovely writer. So thank thanks you, for thank joining you. me, and let's do this again sometime. Let's do it again. Thank you for having me. All the best.